0: Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at PainesvilleAG.com. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Does anybody enjoy bird watching? My, I, I, I don't know. As I get older, my interests change a little bit, and I, I find myself enjoying things that I didn't enjoy before. And some of you, you know, you might go, bird watching, what is all of that? But uh, I I, got this bird feeder, and, uh, and so outside my back deck, I got this long pole, and I stuck this bird feeder up on a, a branch that comes down, and just a little bit over a couple of knots that are there, and had the opportunity just to, to sit on the back deck and watch these birds. Jamie set up a hummingbird feeder, and that's a whole interesting thing all on its own. You know, those little things are territorial. You know, one of them's over there feeding, the other one comes down and dive bombs, and you see the two of them, like, fighting together. It's just really strange. One of the things, though, that I've noticed uh, about bird watching uh, is that you can really tell the kind of bird that it is based on the markings of that bird, the things that, 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 that kind of uh, mark the distinguishing marks for those. For instance, we've got some blackbirds around here that have a red patch on the shoulder with like a yellow uh, bar underneath that red patch. And so I began to say, well, what kind of, what kind of birds are those? those? Aren't just typical blackbirds. And what I found is they're called the red-winged blackbird. And you can tell because of the distinguishing mark that it's on its shoulder. Now, if I said that there was a bird that was red in color and had a black mask around its eyes and and its mouth and had a crest on top, you would say, what kind of bird is that? A cardinal, it's a state cardinal, right? You wouldn't say it's a bluebird, right? Because it's red, all right? We know a blue jay is blue. You know, there are distinguishing marks and you can tell that's a male cardinal because the female is brown, although it does have some tinge, it has that same uh, crest on top. There's some tinges of some orange and red in it, but typically it blends it a little more and you know that's a female. You know it by its distinguishing marks. You say, pastor, where are you going with this? Because friends, so too, for a believer in Jesus Christ, as a follower of Jesus, we ought to have distinguishing marks that derive from the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. There ought to be distinguishing marks. You know, I I found this little story I thought was funny. On Sunday, as they drove home from church, there was a little girl, and she turned to her mother, remarking on some things that the pastor had said during his sermon that morning. And she said, Mom, is it true the pastor said that God is bigger than we are? In fact, that God is so big, He can hold the whole world in His hands. And the mother said, Yeah, that's true. She goes, Well, Wait a minute, the pastor also said that Jesus is close to us, and when I accept Jesus into my life as a believer, he comes and he lives inside of me. And his mother, her mother said, yes, honey, that, that's true as well. So she kind of paused for a moment, had a puzzled look on her face, and she, she said this, she asked this question, well, if God is bigger than us and he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? See, that ought to be what happens, isn't it? The the question that we're asking today, what are the distinguishing marks of a believer of Jesus Christ that is living under the blessing of God and derives that grace and that hope and that life from the gospel? What are the distinguishing marks? And so today we're going to begin a series in Matthew chapter 5 where we're going to, over the next eight weeks, look at the Beatitudes. We're gonna look at these things called the Beatitudes, the the blessed Bees, so to speak. We're gonna take a look at that because with this, we find that there are some things internal, not external, but internal that allow us to have distinguishing marks as a believer in Jesus Christ. Some things that that Jesus said about how, what ought to come out of us. And through this teaching, we're gonna look at spiritual transformation. What is it to be transformed by the Gospel and the Kingdom of God? You see, this sermon immediately follows the healing ministry of Jesus. Jesus was able to heal people instantly. There were miracles that were taking place. But changing the inner man involves a process of time. And thus, the Sermon on the Mount and becoming who Christ wants us to be begins with the Beatitudes. And so, Jesus' emphasis on the Beatitudes is upon being. It's upon being. They are the be attitudes it's about being later in the sermon on the mount Jesus is going to talk about doing but he starts with being why does he start with being because before we're called to activity how many of you know we're called to character we're called to character we're called to being on the inner man so over the next 8 weeks we're going to take a look at these beatitudes and what we're going to find is one one Uh, You need to start at the beginning because each one builds upon another and creates momentum that pushes us towards spiritual growth. And that distinction is really important. Why? Because the Beatitudes tell you what a Christian, a true Christian looks like. What does a true disciple of Jesus look like? What does a true follower of Jesus look like? Going back to the bird illustration for a moment, if if you were to take a look at an American goldfinch, you would see that the yellow color, it has a very distinctive yellow color. However, the distinctive yellow color does not make, uh, is something that demonstrates that the bird is a goldfinch. It didn't make the bird. The yellow doesn't make the bird a goldfinch, but the bird is yellow because it's a goldfinch. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Let me just kind of, the nature of the bird gives rise to its color. Therefore, its color reflects its nature. You can paint yellow dye on a black bird, but it doesn't make it a gold and that distinction is important when we understand the teaching of Jesus and the Beatitudes. A Christian is known by the distinguishing marks that are set out in Matthew chapter 5 starting in verse 1 and going to verse 12, and they're evidence of a new life in Christ, not the cause. It's the evidence, not the cause. Again salvation is by grace alone. This is not a works thing, but rather as we receive Christ into our lives, these are the kinds of marks that we ought to see in the life of a believer. And so let's start with this, let's, let's read through the Beatitudes. I want to read through it all together, and then today we're going to start on, on the first one, blessed, be the, blessed are the poor in spirit, all right? So let's begin, Matthew chapter 5, 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward where in heaven. Great is your reward, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what I want to start out by saying in New Testament times, the those who were teaching sat down. They sat down when they would teach. And Jesus breaks away from miracles. He breaks away from healing. He went up on the mountainside. He began to teach some of his disciples. Now, this just wasn't the 12 that were following him. There were others that sat down. He had gathered the 12, but there were probably crowds that were around on the mountainside. And Jesus begins to teach some very important principles and important keys when it comes to the kingdom of God. And Jesus starts by using the word blessed or blessed blessed. Everybody wants to be blessed. How many want to be blessed? Anybody? Yeah, you want to be blessed. I think we want to be blessed. We, we, we want to be blessed in our business. We want to be blessed in our families. We want to be blessed in our relationships. We want to be blessed in life. We want to be blessed in death. We want to be blessed in eternity. That word blessed, we want to be blessed. But what does that word mean? In this particular passage of Scripture. Blessed or blessed is makrios, which is the New Testament word that essentially means happy, but it's not a superficial happiness. In fact, it's the connotation of a joy that results from receiving some sort of favor, in this case, divine favor or grace, the favor of the Lord. In fact, the very name beatitudes comes from the Latin equivalent beatis, which means happy, Or fortunate, happy or fortunate. Some translators had a rough time with this word, and and, and so blessed is not used much outside the church, or blessed isn't used much outside the church, and so they they translated it happy. But happy doesn't really give the same connotation in the word, the, the English, the happy comes from the English word, hap, hap, the Latin, excuse me, Latin root hap, which kind of means something that happened. We kind of happen, circumstances that happen. It's about outward things that happen. So I'm happy because something good happened to me. And I'm not happy because something bad happened to me. And so happy is not necessarily a great translation of this. Because it, it it's, does not include, the, the Beatitudes don't include anything about outward circumstances. It's not about having a happy marriage. It's, it, it's not about uh, the kind of things, financial stability or having children that are gifted or those kind of things that we're talking about. That That's not what we associate with God's blessing. Blessed goes way beyond that. In fact, a true translation of the word blessed actually means content or in tune with God. To be blessed is to be content and in tune with God. That that's, that's what it means to be blessed, that I am in tune with God. And you know, I don't know about you, but that's how I want to live my life. I want to live my life in tune with God, that no matter what outward circumstances, no matter what virus, no matter what mask I have to put on, no matter how, what goes on around me, no matter what's happening politically, whether I agree or disagree, my, my contentment, my I'm in tune with the Lord, and therefore, I am blessed. Therefore, I'm blessed. It's knowing in the deepness of our soul that God approves and accepts us and that we are satisfied with that. So how do we begin this journey towards being content or blessed or in tune with this life despite the circumstances around us? Well, as I said before, the Beatitudes have a definite order. There is an order. This wasn't something that Jesus just happened to just rattle off a bunch of things and and it was kind of a list. There's an order because one builds upon another and you can't get to being pure in heart or being a peacemaker or getting to the place where you hunger and thirst for the Lord without first beginning with the first one, which is being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit. Blessed, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, poor means that you don't have much, and that doesn't seem particularly blessed, does it? (laughs) Poor and blessed don't seem to be the same thing, at least not in some circles of teaching, to be poor and blessed. If being poor could bring us a blessing, then the progress would simply be this, to renounce wealth and to embrace poverty. And there are some people outwardly that have taken it that way, but that's not what poor in spirit means. Poor in spirit has little to do with wealth and little to do with a false modesty that denies God-given gifts or talents. Poor in spirit means that you recognize your poverty before God. You recognize your poverty before God. It's an attitude towards yourself where you affirm that you have not lived the life which God has called you to live, and that without Him, you can't do so now. That without God, you can't live the life that He's calling you to do. There's a poverty in your spirit where you recognize a need for God. You recognize a need. The poor in spirit is the first mark of the person who walks with God. And to, to kind of understand this, I want to look at an Old Testament example. How many have heard of the prophet Isaiah before? The, the, the prophet Isaiah was one of these guys that you have to understand was, was, uh, was, was very eloquent in his writing. I'm reading through the book of Isaiah right now, and, and, and he was prophesying during a time of Israel's kings. It says in the year that, that King Uzziah died, uh, during that time period, he was prophesying and he would teach and he would preach. And if there were conference speakers today, uh, Isaiah would be one of those conference speakers. People would line up. If he had uh, social media back then, he would have had a time ton of followers. He just, he, he was a guy that, 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 that people knew, man, this is a spiritual guy. This is a guy that, that really can bring it. But what's interesting is, is that Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, verse 1, says that God is, he saw a vision of God sitting on His throne and high and lifted up, and and, and so he talks about the sheer size of God. He's trying to give us a context in human terms. How do I understand the sheer magnitude of God? And so he says, the train of His robe filled the temple. So you have to understand the temple was a lot bigger than even our building here. It was, it was huge and it was a place. And Isaiah says that when he saw God sitting on his throne, he was so big that literally the train of his robe just filled the entire temple. So he's trying to give us a concept of how big and how remarkable God is. And when he does, he says that everything else in God's presence, everything in the presence of God became small. Angelic creatures through above the throne calling out to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of His glory." In fact with this announcement the foundations of the building began to shake and he said that the whole place was filled with smoke in the temple just just began to fill it up and this godly prophet this one that people would line up this one that would wax eloquent the the what the Lord was speaking through him suddenly he sees who he is in relationship to God and this is his response woe is me woe is me I'm lost I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. There is nothing I can do in the very presence of God. I find myself poor in spirit. When it comes to God, I find myself in a position where no longer, when I look around at the standards that I would measure myself for spirituality among everybody else in in my culture, everybody else in my church, everybody else in my area, when I get in the presence of God, I can say nothing else but woe is me. I'm lost. A spiritual poverty. And see, poor in spirit, that is where the blessing of God begins. We say blessed are the poor in spirit. Where where does it begin? It begins when we begin to understand who we are in relationship to almighty God and it's a blessing that leads to all of the others. And this promised blessing, it says, the spirit is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, all of the others that you see, except for the last ones about persecution, which mirror the same one, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of them say, shall, it shall come, it will come. They're future blessings. But this one, this is here and now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now. It says, is the kingdom. It's present tense. It's present tense. The promise of heaven breaks this pattern. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the present tense. You can enjoy a taste of heaven right now. Now, I don't know about you, but you might be looking around right now at this virus thing. And everything that's going on and the fact that, you know, these kind of things are uncomfortable and you're going, I don't, this doesn't seem like a taste of heaven to me. I don't see any streets of gold. There are people that are mourning. There's still death that's happening. There are people that are still crying. I don't, I don't, I don't see what you're talking about. What about heaven right now? I don't see lion laying down with lambs. I don't see wars no longer happening. Every tear wiped from our eyes, not yet. What is this taste of heaven that we're talking about? The poor in spirit taste the greatest blessing of heaven, which is simply this. It's the presence of God. It's the presence of God. This is what the Almighty declared to Isaiah. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, look at this, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you see what the Lord says? He dwells in two places. He dwells in the heavenlies as a holy God. He dwells in the heavenlies, but where else does he dwell? It says that he dwells in the hearts of the contrite, in the hearts of the lowly. The very place of blessedness of the presence of the Lord begins with a heart that is contrite and a heart that is poor in spirit. You begin to experience heaven because heaven is about the presence of the Lord. Psalm thirty four eighteen: the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Look at this, Psalm 138, 6. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar from afar. He, he knows the proud from afar, but he lives with the lowly. If you want to move beyond relating to God from a distance and you want to feel his presence in your life, then you've got to begin by humbling yourself. Begins with humility. The promise of God's presence with the poor in the spirit is the door of hope. It, it is the blessing that is promised not on the basis of what we have, but more on the basis of what we lack. Charles Spurgeon describes the paradox of the first beatitude this way. I love it. He said, It is worthy of a double mention that this first blessing is given rather than to the absence, than to the presence of praiseworthy praiseworthy excellence, or qualities, excuse me. It is a blessing, not upon the man who is distinguished for his virtue— or remarkable for that excellence, but upon him whose chief characteristic is that he confessed, confessed his own sad deficiencies. Not what I have, but what I have not, is the first point of contact between the soul of man and God. Not what I have, but what I lack. In my weakness, you are made strong. Paul said. As Paul said, I will glorify in my weakness. God can use brutal circumstances to bring us to a place where we are poor in spirit. And we find ourselves saying, you know what, I don't have what it takes to be able to face this. I don't have what it takes to be able to face these challenges. I just can't do it. You may find that that is the very pathway that leads you into the blessing of the very presence of God. Because God says, I dwell with you there. When you're overwhelmed by the power of temptation, God can use the intensity of your struggle to shatter your pride to say, I can't do it on my own. Brings us to a place of poor in spirit, and if that happens, the battle that's brought to you can bring you to the brink of despair, but can also bring you to the new place of blessing and victory as you find that in your very weakness, that's when the Lord begins to rise up in you and you see a strength that you did not have on your own, in your own pride and in your own power. There's a hope. There's a hope for when you've messed up. Failure should lead to a genuine humility before God. Christ will come and live with you and the very sin that should have led you down the road to hell can in turn turn you around, which means that it may be the very thing that leads you to the path of heaven. People who fear they have something to offer to God usually come with their hands full but as long as our hands are full, then we're not in a position to be able to receive When your hands are full, you can't receive. I saw a little thing on on Twitter, a little video of this dog that had a tennis ball in its mouth, and the owner had had a, a treat, and the owner was trying to give the dog the treat, but the dog wouldn't give up the tennis ball in its mouth, so it couldn't get the treat. It kept trying to get the treat, but it couldn't because the tennis ball was in its mouth. There are some of us, we want the blessings of God, but our hands are so full of what we're hanging on to that because we're unwilling to let go, we can't receive something better from the Lord. We've got to begin to live with empty-handedness. Drop the pebbles because we want the gold that can only be received from those that live empty-handed. So I want to talk as we begin to kind of move here. I want to, I want to just close this message with six blessings for empty-handed believers. Six blessings of empty-handed believers. And we're going to go through them quickly. Go you know, Six points. Oh my goodness, Pastor. We're going to be here forever. I promise. I'll keep it short. All right. Empty-handedness will release you from the idea that God owes you, that God owes you. I say that because oftentimes we, we, we live with this idea that we are owed something. We live with this idea that there are certain things that we are owed. There are certain things that are our right, that they, we, we should expect these things. They should be part of who we are. But God is your creator. Let me tell you something. He owes you nothing. He is creator. He is God. And not only is he creator and he's God, but then he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to then purchase the redemption of your soul because sin, the sin debt was so great that you were a slave to sin. But Jesus Christ came and he bought you with his precious blood, died on the cross, and so you've been created and bought. Bought with a price. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. What does that mean, I'm not my own? It means that God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe me anything. But some of us live that way. We have a Ten Commandments for God. That shalt provide a level of income that will sustain my chosen lifestyle. Thou shalt give me joy and fulfillment and mutually satisfying relationships all the days of my life. Thou shalt insulate our loved ones from suffering and and experience by others in this world. God, God should insulate me from all of those problems. And when God doesn't, we say, and woe to God if he doesn't meet our expectations. Unfortunately, that's the way that sometimes we live. We bring an Americanism to the gospel. And Americanism needs to die when it comes to who we are in Christ. Just saying. Pride is written all over these kind of statements. I have something, I gave something to God, therefore he owes something back to me. Friends, God doesn't owe you anything. And on that path, as long as my heart is there, then I am set up for disappointment and resentment and bitterness. The blessing of God belongs not to those who list their demands, but to the poor in spirit who humble themselves before him. Those who the poor in spirit say, I owe God everything, and I can give him nothing. I owe him everything, and I can give him nothing. See, when you're poor in spirit, you get delivered from the lies that God owes you better than you had in the past or better than you have right now. Secondly, empty-handedness will position you to ask and receive in prayer. This is so key. Being poor in spirit really does feed our prayer life. It puts us in a position in our prayer life. Thomas Watson said, "A poor man is ever begging. He who is poor in spirit is much in prayer." People who know their own need have an active prayer life, and when they when they come before the Lord and they pray, they ask. See, Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector in Luke 18:9 through 14. And he said both of them pray, they, they, both, they both give prayers, but there's a different way that they pray. The Pharisee says about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers. But the striking difference between these prayers is the Pharisee who says, I'm not like this, never asks for anything. He just simply declares his standing and how much better he is than everybody else. But he isn't asking for anything and therefore he receives Nothing. His heart thinks he already has what it takes. Therefore, he is not poor in spirit, and therefore he can receive nothing from God because he does not have anything to ask for. But the task collector, head hanging in shame, says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The task collector asks because he knows his own need. He is poor in spirit, and he asks for the very mercy of God, and therefore this is what it says about him, that he went home blessed, justified, and forgiven foreign spirit puts us in a position where we are active in prayer and in humility where we can receive from the Lord. Thirdly, empty-handedness helps you bear affliction. Helps you bear affliction. This is important for today, isn't it? This is important for today. The Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who were in a culture that was much like ours, very much uh, agnostic towards believers, antagonistic, very much they, 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 they worshiped. A, a different way. Worship Caesar, worship these different gods and goddesses as, as the Greek culture worked itself through and his sin was abounding during this time. And this is what Peter said, 1 Peter 4, 12, do not be surprised at the fiery, deal, fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised by it. So many times we're surprised by it. And how do you prepare when trials come? Well, Peter went on to say in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The pursuit of humility must not be first a strategy where you think you must find strength in difficult times, but when God gives grace to the humble, you say, you know what, I need the humility to be able to endure difficult times. God, I need to position myself in humility. I don't know about you, but we need grace more than ever today. We need grace more than ever today. And how do we receive grace? In humility, we receive grace. Pride keeps us in opposition to God when really what we need is grace. Fourthly, empty-handedness nourishes your love for others. This is so important. Why? Because here's about pride. Pride is always self-seeking, and pride is easily provoked. It's the opposite of love. Which doesn't boast and is not arrogant or rude according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Pride's like a bucket of water that pours on the fires of love in a marriage. If there's pride in a marriage you can, and you have pride that's going on, you can experience the fires of that going out. But humility can fan into flame the dying embers of love. Love gets choked out, love gets choked out by the weeds of pride. But it grows and thrives in the soil of a humble heart the soil of a humble heart. Fifthly, empty handedness strengthens you to overcome temptation. We made reference to that earlier. Pride is a a gateway to sin. It opens the door to many other sins. In fact, at the heart of sin is this area of pride. In fact, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The New Testament truth of this or version of this in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. By pursuing humility, we begin to strike a blow at the temptation of the enemy. The master of sin is pride. And and, and in this way, we subdue the power of many other sins that open up the door. and, And in fact, we open up the door to blessing instead of sin when we find ourselves in humility. Number six, empty-handedness leads you to worship Jesus. Leads you to worship Jesus. I highlighted this in my notes because I think this next, this next thing is just so important. The more you see in yourself, the less you'll see in Christ. The more you see in yourself, the less you see in Christ. The more you see in Christ, the less you see in yourself. As Christ is magnified, so we, so we shrink. So what we see in ourselves becomes small. Again, Charles Spurgeon, I love some of the things that he wrote and preached. He said, Christ is never precious till we are poor in spirit. We must see our own wants before we can perceive his wealth. Pride blinds the eyes and sincere humility must open them. Or the beauties of Jesus will forever be hidden from us. When you see the poverty of your position before God, it's the gift of Jesus Christ that, that will overwhelmingly become glorious to you. And, and you begin to see all the good that there is in God. So many times we don't see the good in God. Therefore, we don't worship Him as God. The enemy loves to tell us how how much God is holding out on us, how much God is not good. And and it begins to stir in our pride that I deserve better. But the more we begin to, to look at the goodness of God, that's why thanksgiving is so important. The more we become thankful and grateful, even in the midst of difficulty, we find those things, the more we have to be able to worship and praise the Lord. When you know you have nothing to offer God, you're in a position to receive everything that he offers to you. When you accept that you can't claim God's blessing as a right, then you're in a position to receive his gift. Empty-handedness is where the blessing of God begins. So I'm going to land the plane. And I want to conclude by just giving some thoughts. How do we cultivate humility how do we cultivate humility now sometimes we like to watch HGTV and and they've got some of these these renovation projects that go on you know house flipping and those kind of things anybody enjoy watching some of those things and and any kind of demolition be, any kind of project begins with demolition and if you you get the pleasure of that it's fun if you get the you know the i've never had this pleasure but you know you you get that big old hammer in your hand, you know, and you begin to whack things, you know, and break down walls and knock things, and it it begins with demo. There's some demo that we have to do, and a good place to begin is by examining our hearts against God's Word. So let's, let me just give you just a couple of examples of what I mean by this. When you measure yourself against God's Word and all that He calls you to pursue, for example, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Which is, which is about love. And I find it's, after, it's right in between this discussion and spiritual gifts. So the more spiritual we are, the more chance we have to, be, uh, to, to have pride. So right in the middle of it is 1 Corinthians 13, and it says that love does not insist its own way. Love does not insist its own way. So here's how you measure your pride against that. Uh, you, you ask yourself this question, where am I insisting my own way? In what areas am I insisting my own way? You ask yourself, when you read, love is not irritable or resentful, ask God, where have I fallen into these sins of becoming irritable and resentful? The Word of God is powerful and effective, and it has a way of being a mirror that can cultivate humility into us. It can show us our own sinfulness as the law begins to reveal God's Word, and we begin to say, God, I fall short of your glory. God, I am poor in spirit. God, I am in need of you, and I I am finding that as I look at your Word, the more I see in your Word, and the more I see who you are, the more I realize how much I need you. Being poor in spirit is knowing and confessing your sins. And as we'll talk about, blessed are those who mourn comes after this. Why? Because as we recognize our poverty in spirit, it leads us to a place of repentance. Without being poor in spirit, we cannot come to a place of repentance, genuine repentance. There is no genuine repentance whereas there is not an ability to open our eyes to see the gap in our need for the Lord humility does not spring from an awareness, or excuse me, the humility then of Jesus. If we look at this uh, area, confessing sin is one side of this, but the other side of this coin is to take a look at Jesus who was sinless and yet who walked in humility. His humility did not come from an awareness of his sin, but rather it came from a different source. Andrew Murray, the writer opened this idea up for me on terms of the other side when he said, if humility is to be our joy, we must see that it is not the only mark of shame because of sin, but a part from all sin, humility is being clothed upon with the very beauty and blessedness of heaven and of Jesus. I want us to just think and linger on these words for a moment. Humility is the very beauty and blessedness of Jesus. Friends, that's a word to pursue. Beyond just guilt and shame and constantly beating ourselves up, it's becoming clothed in Christ. Beginning clothed in Christ. So as we demolish pride and pretense and self-righteousness, as we begin to demolish the pride, then we've got to begin the renovation. The old and the ugly we take out. Now we begin to rebuild on this foundation of who we are in Christ and our need of Christ. And Murray goes on to explain that humility is something deeper than contrition. It is a participation in the life of Jesus. Being poor in spirit is part of becoming like Jesus who humbled himself, where Jesus said, I can do nothing of my own. I can do nothing on my own. And John 5.30, John 6.38, Jesus said this, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. And John 8:50, I do not seek my own glory. You see, these words of Jesus ought to be the words of us where we recognize that even in our own spiritual formation, even in our own spiritual growth, that we cannot do anything apart from Christ. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. That fruitfulness flows from relationship with Christ and recognizing our position and who we are in the presence of Christ. And from that we say, not my will, I will not insist my own way, not my will, but yours be done. And I will not seek my own glory, but I will seek to glorify you that you must increase and I must decrease. And it's in pursuing humility that we reflect the beauty of this life. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And as they do, I want to challenge you today and challenge you at home. Let's examine ourselves in light of the Word of God. In light of the Word of God, is there some demolition of pride that needs to take place? Is there demolition of pride in my life? Are there areas in my life that that need to go? And, And in humility, seeing the Son of God, I find that I have a poverty before the Lord. And God, it brings me to a place where I say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. There is nothing more that I need than you. Nothing more that I need in you. For those blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is dominated by the presence of the Lord. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That God lives in the heavenlies, but he also lives with the contrite. Friends, I don't know about you, but I long for the presence of the Lord. And the presence of the Lord begins when I do a demo of my own pride. And I begin to say, Lord, who am I without you? I need you. Thomas Watson, I just want to close with this quote. He says this, how poor are they that think themselves rich? And how rich are they that see themselves poor? That think themselves poor. Friends, are you poor in spirit today? Let's begin to examine our hearts today. And I want to pray. And I want to just invite you just to pray with me today. And then we're going to enter into a time of worship as we close today. Jesus, we see our need of you. Lord, we do not have what it takes. Lord, we are facing things we have never faced before. And Lord, we don't have what it takes. We need you. Not just in our external things, but Father, inside of our heart, the character that when we are tested and we are challenged, oh, so many times what comes out is so discouraging. Lord, forgive us. Father, forgive us today. Teach us, Lord, to walk in humility with you. As we examine ourselves, show us today, Holy Spirit. Show us today areas in our lives where, Lord, we need to demolish pride. Show us areas, Lord, where we need to humble ourselves and clothe ourselves in you, Jesus. That you would be seen, that you would be seen today. Oh God, we need you, we need you, we need you today. Holy Spirit, we need you. Like Isaiah, we say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Jesus, we need you today to bring what we do not have, the coal of your holiness, and God, to touch us today, to touch our lips today, to touch our tongues in what we speak today, and to come and bring change to our heart, to write your law on our heart, oh God. That we would be ones that as we are out, there are distinguishing marks that you can tell that's a believer in Jesus, that's a disciple of Jesus, that's a Christian by the very nature that you put inside of us. Oh Lord, we humble ourselves today. We repent today. We confess our need of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened by God's word. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, please visit PainesvilleAG.com.